right. As I said, we've been going through Luke and uh, touching on some different people that Jesus meets along the pathway. Uh, we've hit a variety of them, and uh, we are coming to a conclusion on there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 tonight. Um, our big idea here, it's in, on the back of your bolt if you want to take notes, is that life is only found or experienced to its fullest when we release control to Jesus. A little bit about what Alan was talking about in terms of um, how we approach our life and our weeks. Um, life is only experienced to its fullest when we re- release or relinquish control to Jesus. And by the way, this is uh, the hardest thing to do, despite who he is. Um, uh, when we let go of control of anything, um, that means I have to trust somebody else to take care of it for me. And um, we struggle to do that. We struggle to do that all the time. Um, and as, as it's happened every single week, whatever we're talking about, it seems like I'm always the bad guy in the story. I just I can relate to the bad guy. And it's, this is one of those weeks when, I'm, when uh, things are running where I'm trying to control everything and make sure life works on my own without the Lord. My wife says it shows up in my eyes really quick. And I have um, in-control kind of eyes this week. I've just been trying to run things and manage things and hold things together. And uh, quite frankly, it doesn't work. So um, it's difficult. Surrender, letting go, releasing means trusting um, and depending. Um, so a good ex- illustration of that, um, even though we're in Arizona, I did not grow up in Arizona, so I grew up in snow. Um, I realize uh, these saucers are for sale here in Tucson about one week a year when the, uh, when the snow comes up in Mount Lemon, and everybody runs up and goes on the little 10-foot sides of the street and thinks it's fun, but that's not really sledding. So real sledding. This little kid, this poor little kid who has a eagerly running up the hill, does not know that death awaits him within minutes after he gets to the top because these things are just plain dangerous. They're called snow saucers, whatever you want to call them, inner tubes. Um, actually, once in college, I was at Breckenridge, Colorado um, skiing, and we got a hold of a bunch of these and some inner tubes. And at nighttime, when the place had closed down, everybody was gone, we snuck in, and we, it took us forever. But we hiked up way up one of the front faces of Breckenridge and hopped on these things and just went flying down. And um, we would have died. I mean, we, we would have died if we hit this mogul run at the bottom. I went over two of them and then just wiped out and it saved the day. So we would have been dead. And actually, we didn't find two of the inner tubes. They went flying into Breckenridge Village, and we just ran and went back to our room. Um, people think these are safe. Um, they think that they're steerable. They think that you can control them. It's a, it's a vicious lie. Um, Every time, although when you go down these things, you get these things, you go up a hill, and you go flying down, and you're like, there's a tree coming. So you lean on them, and you'll miss the tree, and then you, all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, I can't steer it. When actually you're just lucky. You're just lucky you just missed the tree, which means you just keep going down in this, uh, this deceived sense of thinking that you actually have control of these um, things, which are for children, by the way, which is awful. Um, when I was growing up, we had metal, they're metal ones. Um, and so, and if you, they were always dented up. I mean, just dents everywhere, which should have been an indication that they should not have been on the market. Um, they give you the illusion of control, but they always end badly. So let me read you, actually, this is uh, the warning label on one of these uh, saucers that are licensed by our government to be able to kids to go on these things. So here's the actual warning label from this. It says, to lessen risk of serious injury or death, follow these rules. Number one, it's not a life-saving device. <laughs> so I guess when you sh- your sink- ship is sinking, you throw a, a I don't know. Anyways, um, the product should never be used by children 
except under adult supervision. And then after that, it says, never leave children unattended. Which it, so it's foolish, silly people are reading this, by the way. Um, or it shouldn't be used by adults acting like children, which is what all adults do when they climb on these things. They can't fit anyways. They put more than one. Um, or you're sitting on it, and you're holding your child in front of you, and they think they're safe. They're not. Um, read the owner's manual carefully before using your slide or sled. Use this project, product in participation in the sport. Not really. Um, involves inherent risks of injury or death. They've already said this once before. They say it again. Do not exceed the manufacturer's recommended number of riders or weight capacity. Whoever reads those things? Nobody does. I mean, people just pile on. Or if you are being safe and going down, usually somebody will jump on top of you as you're going down the hill and then add on to it. And it just goes faster and faster and faster. Do not tow behind a motorized vehicle, for it is not a towable device. Tell my dad that. We used to tie three of them on the back of the station wagon, and he'd fly down. And I remember my mom actually going in her room and shutting the door and not coming out and praying because she would not say anything to my dad about it, but she would just be praying that we'd all come back. I remember him slamming on the brakes, and we would all just ram into the back of the car. Do not use near streets or vehicle traffic, near driveways, highways, motor, motorized vehicles, or of any kind, or on icy surfaces. What is snow but an icy surface? So you, you take a metal, a metal saucer, slide it on the snow a little bit, and what do you get? You get ice. So I don't know what they're thinking. Go down concrete on it? But anyways, avoid obstacles, of course, and or dangerous terrain or sudden drops, which is also called a hill, by the way. <laughs> Use in a clear, open area. There is no such thing as a clear, open area. Um, safety gear is recommended. Use of protective clothing, such as a helmet. Who, what kid wears a helmet on a saucer? That's just embarrassing. So you don't do those kinds of things. Do not stand or kneel on this project, product at any time. And then it says after that, use only in a seated or prone position. I think that's not standing. but um, So apparently people, not, if you've never had a physics class, people don't realize it. Or even people that do, they'll put the saucer out there. They'll run, you see guys, and they'll jump on it and try to stand on it. The saucer goes faster than the body, right? Yeah, it's, it, college students do that. I've done it. Do not use only a seated position. Do not use under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So be aware, this item can develop high speeds under certain snow conditions. Use it at your own risk. In other words, it can develop high speeds under any snow conditions, by the way, as long as the hill is steep enough. Attempting stunts, aerial tricks, or jumps increase the risk of being seriously injured. Use common sense. Getting on a saucer is not using common sense. I'm just telling you, no matter what they tell you, Inspect the product before use. If you have ever inspected one of these things, they're either dented up or they have huge like splits in them. If you ever get the plastic ones, they get the little crack in it, and then you sit on it, and the crack kind of opens a little bit, and then it closes, and it does not feel good. So I've experienced that as well, unless you're wearing a full snowmobile suit. Do not use this product if it appears to be cracked or damaged. Well, they all are. So this item is intended for one rider weighing less than 120 pounds. If you are... 10 pounds, you die on these things. The, here's the last one. Actually, there's two more. Proposition 65 warning. This particular product contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer or birth defects. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the sauce. And the last one. This item does not have steering or brakes. Use with caution. Everybody who gets on these things thinks that they can steer them. I'm telling you. I mean, sleds, you can steer a little bit. They're like little runners. 
Um, if you ever had one of those, they steer somewhat. Um, toboggans, by the way, if anybody, where I grew up, we had toboggan slides. Um, toboggans, the person in front is supposed to steer, they don't really steer. But a number of people I've seen break their legs by getting run over by them. They don't steer. These things in inner tubes do not steer at all. So you can lean your weight all you want, and they will not steer. So you fly down the hill, out of control. And the truth is, um, we live life, I live life, like I'm on a saucer all the time. Um, flying down through the days um, with this um, deceived mindset that I actually can control and steer and order it in a way to avoid a crash, and I will be flying through my life, just like on a saucer, going down a crazy hill and thinking everything's fine. And a tree will come by, some obstacle in life, and I will miss it, and I'll think, ah, yes, this is working, this is working. You know what? It doesn't work. When we try to run life by ourselves, when we try to control it and steer it, it doesn't work. Eventually, eventually, we hit a tree or a car, or a person, or something along the way. Um, we live lives that are out of control, much, life, much like being on a saucer and believing that we actually are steering it the way we'd want it to go. Scriptures say, whoever shall save his own life will lose it. And the fact is that we will often grab at anything to hold on to and to maintain control and try to make it work. We'll just grab like desperate people. Um, rather than letting go and letting somebody else take control of it. And that brings us to our story today, because I believe um, this story that we look at is a man who's out of control, a man who's trying to steer his life, and it is not working. It is not working. It's going to crash. So Luke chapter 23, just listen as I read it. I'm going to read verses, the first five verses, and then beginning with verse 13 through 25 from Luke 23. The whole body of them got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. So Pilate asked Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But rather they kept on insisting and saying, He stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even at this place. Jumping ahead to verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at least one prisoner at the feast. But they all cried out together, saying, Away with this man. Release for us Barabbas. This man had been one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. So Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept calling out to him, Crucify, crucify him. And he said a third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But Jesus, he delivered him to their will. Lord, I'd ask that you would, um, as we examine this man Pilate, um, at least in some measure, um, 
and the ways we can be like him. May we see it, um, not for condemnation, but for, so that we can release things to you and we can um, live life to its fullest by um, giving it over to you in a fuller way. In Jesus' name, amen. So just before this, there had been a mock trial. You know the story that they've arrested Jesus. Um, the uh, Sanhedrin has taken Jesus and done a trial at night, which was, was, was illegal at the time. They're supposed to do a trial during the day so that people could be there, but they do it at nighttime. Um, they have completed their trial. You remember they've gotten Jesus, um, they basically ask him if he's God himself, and Jesus says, I'm he. And so they accuse him of blasphemy, claiming to be God. And early in the morning, they're going to bring him to Pilate. Um, actually, um, most of the uh, judicial things with, with Pilate were done in the morning time. So here early in the morning they arrive, and, and Pilate's going to be there to hear people's cases. And he, he meets the Sanhedrin as they bring um, Jesus to him. The legal system in Judea was that Rome ruled. We've already looked at this. Rome was in charge. They were administratively in charge. The, the military was in charge. They ran the government. They ran everything. But they, as much as possible, had the local people run their own affairs. It just made things work more smoothly. Um, but the ultimate control uh, belonged to Rome. So they would try their own people in most cases. Um, but capital punishment couldn't be done by the Jewish nation. That only could be done by Rome. So they wanted Jesus dead. So by the time they found him, what they thought was guilty of blasphemy, they had to bring him to Rome in order to get their judgment against him in order to be able to crucify him and put him to death. They couldn't do it themselves. So they brought Jesus here um, to Pilate. They come to this man, Pilate. He was their procurator, um, appointed in AD 26 by Tiberius. Most likely he obtained his position by some payment of money, which is pretty common. Um, had given some kind of help or money or property and had obtained his appointment to be um, this position in uh, Judea at the time. He was under the authority of the governor of Syria. The ultimate authority was under the governor of Syria, and Pilate was underneath him and would have to answer to him. Pilate had a certain amount of military might, but the bigger might was underneath the governor of Syria. It was kind of a, um, I don't even know how to describe it, in our, kind of a mid-level um, role in terms of uh, the Roman government. Um, he wasn't a bottom-line guy, but he wasn't the top it was kind of a, mid, a mid-level kind of guy. He had a certain amount of power and authority, of course, in, um, but it was really kind of a stepping stone position to something better. And part of that stepping stone was going through Judea and having this job, which is not, was not a popular job because you're, um, you're basically a peacekeeper over a group of people who have been conquered and don't really want you there. And that's basically his bottom line of his job is to be a peacekeeper, um, to make sure that everything runs smoothly, which means the Romans have to be happy, and the Jews have to be happy. And Rome doesn't want to hear about any troubles at all. That's his job, and to do it in a way that's satisfactory for them to keep it. Um, he, he hated the Jews. Um, it comes through in a number of different things, in particular some historical records. Um, in his assignment here, um, he primarily, Pilate primarily uses military might to get his way with the people, which isn't really what Rome wanted, but that's pretty much um, what he wanted to do. This, as we look at this guy, um, Pilate. As a result of it, Pilate was hated by the Jews as well because he was using his might in order to control what they did. So when they would do things he didn't like rather than kind of meeting with them and working something out and, and making things smoothed over, he would just take the easy route. He'd just send in his group and his military forces and would make things right. And so he was hated by them as well. He had done two things prior to this event with Jesus that had gotten the people really mad. At one place, um, when he first took power, 
he entered into Jerusalem and he had all these standards that they would carry all these standards to show his coming. And on his standards, he had this emblem, which was the Jews viewed as a, an, like an idol. And earlier on in their history, Rome had agreed not to take this emblem and bring it into the holy city of Jerusalem. They would leave it out just because it upset the people so much. So let's not upset them. Let's not make more trouble than we need. And so the Roman policy was that they were not allowed, the Romans weren't supposed to bring these emblems into the city of Jerusalem. Pilate completely reversed the, the issue, and knowing that law brought him in anyways, which made everybody really angry. And so a bunch of people rose up and began to get angry about it. And you know what he did with them? He just killed them. He killed the people that had done it. So they made an appeal to Rome about it, and he, he received a job reprimand um, for not having handled that one in a good way. So his job's a little bit on the line here. The second thing that happened um, is he went into the temple treasury and took money from the temple treasury and used it for Roman building projects. So it's kind of like the city of Tucson wants to put more money into the, uh, the streetcar, and they would come to us and say, we're taking it from the church offering kind of box, kind of deal, that kind of deal. So uh, Pilate was taking money from the temple and using it for his own projects in, in Jerusalem, which, of course, people th- was sacrilegious to them. So they're angry, and they're, they're hating this man for doing it. Again, um, a bunch of riots happened because of it, and Pilate squelched the riots, not by giving the money back, not by smoothing it over, but he just brought his army in there, and he killed a whole bunch of people. Again, he was reprimanded by Rome. Bad, bad, bad boy, don't do that anymore. You're going to lose your job. And, uh, and he continued on here, and this brings us up to the story with Jesus. So, um, and it's interesting, um, you know, he uses uh, cruelty, he uses mock trials, he uses there's all sorts of evidence of him having executions, um, had no respect for their local religion. He was in power for about 10 years. A few years after this issue with Jesus and the crucifixion, um, up in Samaria, there's a group that, that believed that there was something up on a mountain that was some great religious artifact of Moses, which it wasn't the case. But they all arrived there with a bunch of weapons, and uh, Pilate, even, knew, even though he knew what was going on, there was no problem here, he just burst in with his army and wiped that entire group of people. Um, they uh, appealed to Rome and to the Syrian governor, and he was actually immediately sent back to Rome for trial. Um, when he gets back to Rome, the emperor had died, and a new emperor was in place, so he ends up getting let off and doesn't have a trial. And all we know about Pilate's life in the ending is that he, just, he ended in an obscure job somewhere, um, not really known for anything that he did, and most records said he committed suicide at some point. And that's how his life um, ends, this, this man, Pilate, who ends up being in this place to judge Jesus. Um, he was heavy-handed. He lacked Roman virtues. He lacked discernment over and over again. Um, even when his job was on the line, he was constantly being called to compromise and appeasing, but he wouldn't do it. Um, interesting, when he asked Jesus, what is truth, that great line, everybody's got different ideas about what he's thinking. I think he was cynical about it. Yeah. I think he asked him and just said, I think, he had, I think he knew what the truth was, perhaps, and he had sold it out. And to, it, just, it was just a cynical statement back to Jesus. says, what's truth? He had given it up. He was a man who didn't, didn't, didn't embrace it anymore. A compromised man. Compromised man. Second of all in the story, we have Pilate meeting Jesus. Pilate meeting Jesus. And if you take all the four Gospels and put them together, and let me just kind of run through. Here's kind of the uh, timeline of what happens with them, just the, the story. And I'm just going to read through these points. There's a whole bunch of interactions. Just be aware that the Passover is happening. Lots of people in town. Herod is in town from, um, Herod Antipas from the, that um, had killed John the Baptist is in town. 
and everything's pretty close together. So there's a whole bunch of movement that happens at this trial, but it all happens very close together in a fairly short amount of time. But you know, the Sanhedrin judges Jesus worthy of death, and so he's uh, bound up. He's actually been already beaten numerous times by the, the Sanhedrin and their soldiers, and he's turned over to Pilate because they're looking for him to be convicted of a uh, capital offense. By the way, Pilate was not going to crucify Jesus because the Jews said he was a, a blasphemer. He didn't care about their religious rules. So they were going to have to find a, a violation of Roman law in order to get uh, Pilate to condemn Jesus, which is why they start talking about the fact that he claims to be a king. He's bound and turned over to Pilate, and at that point, Pilate asked the Jews what accusation they brought against him, um, and Pilate told the Jews, tell him to say, take him and judge him for yourself. He says, you know, he's blasphemed. He says, well, judge him yourself. Do it yourself. Take care of it on your own, but they won't do that. They, they reply they lack authority to carry out the death sentence. So then Pilate begins to question Jesus about this claim to be a king. They say, he claims to be a king. And Pilate begins to question about it. Remember, Jesus says, you know, I'm a king, but this is not my kingdom here. Um, he, he begins to respond to him. There's some conversation between Pilate and Jesus about what mean, Jesus means by being a king. Um, he says he's king, but not of this world. Um, Pilate sends then Jesus to Herod, um, and there were some, I won't go into it, but there were some, re- Herod and Pilate did not get along. And um, Herod was in town, so Pilate hears that Jesus was in Galilee for a while. He goes, hey, that's his territory. I'm not going to mess with this. I'll send him off to somebody else. So he sends him across the court over to Herod. If you remember the story, um, Herod, who Jesus called the fox. Um, Herod asks all these Jesus these questions, wants to get to perform things, and Jesus says nothing to him, does not say a word to him. And um, Herod finally, after, and again, he's scourged by Herod as well and mocked, sends him back to Pilate, actually declaring that he's innocent, can't find anything with him. Um, so Pilate has said he's innocent, Herod says he's innocent, and he sends him back. At that time, as the old story we get about Pilate's wife has a dream. She says, don't condemn this man, you remember? And uh, comes to Pilate, he gets word that his wife is saying, watch out, this is, do not condemn this man. And he begins to be fearful about that. Interesting, he'll ignore his wife's advice um, later on as we move through the story. Um, but his, his Pilate's wife sends a message. Pilate proposes releasing Jesus, um, but the multitude begins to clamor, and they say they want Barabbas, who's a murderer. Um, the guys uh, condemn murder, but they continue to ask for that instead. Um, and then at that point is when Pilate washes his hands, remember? And he says, I'm innocent of this. Actually, go back in the Old Testament, um, and I don't know if he was aware of this, probably not, but... When there was a murder, unsolved murder, um, in, in Israel, and nobody knew who killed somebody, they would actually wash their hands over the body and would claim innocence for the murder. And he's, there's a claim here for being innocent. He's innocent about, he's about to murder somebody, but he's claiming innocence um, for it here. Um, he has him scourged um, again, and then he attests one more time to his innocence. He says, I have no crime in him. Uh, that's out of John chapter 19. Um, and at that point, as Pilate brings Jesus forward, he says, Behold the man. He's been beaten a couple, several times at this point. He's been declared innocent by numerous people. Pilate's still bringing before the people, trying to release him again. Um, he speaks with Jesus again about his power. Remember, he says, I have the power to crucify you, and I can release you. And then that's when Jesus speaks, and he says, The only power you have is what God above gives to you. Um, just, just this clear statement of God's sovereignty over the things that are about to happen here. Pilate again brings Jesus before the people and says, here's your king. Um, and the Jews, remember, they say that we have no king but who? We have no king but Caesar. 
and they begin to shout out um, that they have no king. Um, Pilate sent, sentences Jesus to be crucified and puts a little title above his head, King of the Jews, and everybody wants it removed. And he says, sorry, what's written is written. That's where it goes. And um, they carry Jesus off um, to be crucified. The only other word we have about Pilate is when his, uh, uh, the guys come to request Jesus' body. And, uh, and Pilate also later on gives the, um, um, the soldiers permission to uh, the Jews to seal the grave because so, they're afraid there's a resurrection. And that's the last we hear of him. It's, it's over. And uh, he was continually saying that he's innocent over and over again, trying to release him again and again and again, and yet having no luck in doing so. As I read through the story, um, something stand, what stands out to me is what we talked about in the beginning. I see a life that's out of control, a life out of control. I see him that he's desperately trying to keep the peace. He keeps trying to release him again and again and again. And his wife says, stay away from this man. So he tries to release him again. And every time he tries to release him, he hits up against a wall. The people won't take it. The people will not receive it. I see a man who's manipulated by the Jewish population to get their way. He knows that they're lying about this. He knows that they're making this up. He knows that they're jealous of him, and yet he's continually um, being manipulated by them. He tries to pass the responsibility to Herod. So if you're having trouble, what do you do? Just give it to somebody else. Somebody else take care of this. I, he's, it's coming apart, and he can't hold it together. So he sends it off to Herod, which does absolutely no good other than that they become friends. Um, at that point, the scriptures tell us. Um, he declares Jesus' innocence over and over and over again. And yet here he's got to keep these people happy. His job's already on the line because he's messed up so many times. And he's got to keep Rome happy at the same time. And guess what? He's standing, I see a man who's standing there going, it's not going to work. The people are not going to be happy until I crucify this person. Rome's not going to be happy if the people get upset. And he's trying to, this person's trying to balance all these things out and pull things together. Um, He's got troubles with his job. All these things are coming together. Um, he's looking for a way out, and everything just keeps coming back again and again and again. Have you ever been in that place where you're trying to you get yourself in a spot, and you're trying to work your way out, and you're just doing the best you can, and it just gets worse, it just gets worse. And at some point, the control passes in the story from Pilate to the people. He can tell he's lost control. Um, the people are shouting for it. He's been trying to, to, to make it all go away. And there's this point in the story where it's not going to go away. And he's, it's about, I, I get the sense it's about to fall out of his hands. There's going to be a riot again. And what's he going to do? And so what does he do? He compromises. And he, he bends to the will of the people because they've suddenly got control and he doesn't. Um, and he condemns Jesus at that point. I see a grown man on a saucer when I look at Pilate. That's what I see. Um, it just is a good picture for me. And I see a grown man in his uniform in all his Roman might, and he's flying down this hill of life. And it's been going for a long time. This is not a one-time incident. It's over and over again. He's been trying to make it all come together and hold it all and hold it all, and suddenly it's starting to just fly apart. It's starting to fly apart. And actually, the end of the story, as I shared before, it, it, it does come apart. His life kind of ends in a really bad way. And the hill is covered with ice. There's obstacles everywhere. He's already had a few close brushes along the way in these 10 years and, and there. The speed is picking up. Even his wife is saying, you're going to crash here. And he's not listening to her as he's flying down this hill. And the crash is inevitable. But what does he do? He does what we do. You can just see it coming. Is this, is this going to be a bad end? And rather than trying to figure out, I need to let go of this and find somebody who can take care of this for me, he just keeps trying to steer harder and harder and harder and hang on to it and keep control of what's happening, hoping that it's all going to work out. 
And truth is, I think down deep, Pilate is a man who is deeply afraid and deeply insecure. And it's just coming apart. And when it all comes apart, guess what? Everybody's going to see what he's like. Everybody's going to see the fact that this guy can't hold it together, that this guy can't manage well, that this guy is maybe taking two steps up too far up the ladder, and this thing is coming apart before his very eyes. And here we have Jesus right in the middle of it. It's a life out of control. And um, as I read that, that is way too familiar, way too familiar um, for me. How often do our days and our events, um, the demands, um, the hopes, and all of our plans and the good things as well as the hard things um, come racing into our days and our life as we move through our days. And all these things are happening all at the same time. And we walk through it um, oftentimes having not stopped to sing the song yet. And we're trying to make it all hold together as we go through. We try to put it in order. We try to manage it. Um, we try to accomplish our tasks, meet everybody's expectations along the way, and trying to keep it together. Trying to keep it together some point in time when everything will be better. And yet something happens along the way. I don't know if you've ever been, um, if this is you, Ed, by the way, this is me, and you're trying to keep it all together, and you're doing pretty good at it, and you're managing well, and you're moving through things, and things are coming along the way, but it's on the edge. And what happens almost every time? Something comes along. It's just that one extra body on the saucer that makes it go crazy. And, um, and it can be something very small or something big. It can be unexpected money trouble. It can be trouble at work. It could be perhaps a loss of a job or maybe too much work or just some interpersonal troubles at work. It can be a child who's gone off course. It can be taking care of an older parent. Um, it can be a family emergency, even just somebody getting sick one night, and it's just not the night that you had time for it, and you've got to drop everything, and suddenly things start coming apart. Being sick just for one day, it can be as small as a flat tire, um, a bad grade, whatever it is. And suddenly what happens? Suddenly we can't keep it all together. Can't keep it together. So things start spinning out of control. And those obstacles that we've been trying to, trying to avoid are right there in front of us. And our saucer is about to have a wreck of some sort. It could be a small one. It could be a really big one. And we've seen people go through this all the time. So what do we do? What do we do when that happens? Well, when I, what I do is I hold on tighter. My first response is to hold on tighter. Give one more try. To pull it together. Just get past this and do one more thing and to hold on tighter. To, um, to work harder. To make it look better. But how many times, um, and I, I can tell you, even yesterday, numerous times when people asked if I needed something, I said, ah, it's okay, I got it. <laughs> I said that so many times yesterday, I was tired yesterday, I, I couldn't even count for them. And yet down deep, I'm like, ah, I'm dying, I'm tired. I could use some help. should have said, yes, I need some help. When we're actually can be drowning, yet we'll keep talking, keep hanging on harder. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Well, we can hang on until it just wrecks, right? We can do that. We can just keep pulling together. You see lives all the time that do that. Hang on until it wrecks. Or we can let it go. That's the other alternative. We can let it go. And when we let it go, what happens? Well, it could all fall apart, couldn't it? Isn't that the, the fear? It's all going to come apart. And if we do that, what will happen? Well, then, what's everybody going to think? If I actually let go and go, I, I'm this out of control. I can't manage my life on my own. I'm not trusting Jesus the way I should be, and let it go and begins to wreck. What are people going to think? Are people going to know I can't manage my money? 
or I can't take care of my kids, or I'm not a great husband, or I'm not really competent in my work, whatever those things might show up. And I think, ah, oh, man, you don't want anybody to know that. So we hang on tighter, or we, hang, or we let go and give the control over to somebody else. So there is a better alternative, and the better alternative is what? We give Jesus control. We give Jesus control. I don't know if you noticed Jesus in the story. We read it. What's happening with Jesus? He's been beaten. He's been abandoned. He's been accused. He's ex- absolutely exhausted. And when I'm exhausted, then that's where I'm really kind of starting, things start falling apart. He's exhausted. And his entire life's work is hanging the balance of a bunch of men that have all abandoned him. And that's where he's at in this story. So what does he do? He trusts that the Father is good and that his plan is right. He's calm. He's careful with his words. He's articulate. He's focused. Even on the cross, we see compassion that comes through him. He's unrushed. He's unpushed. And even in the midst of standing before Pilate, of all these things going on, there's, he's at peace. There's an absolute at peace in Jesus as he walks through this horrendous events that he had been living for. And what does Jesus say to us? He said it earlier in the, in the book. He says, come unto me, everybody who's weary and heavy laden. And guess what? You get rest. Guess right. Those who are holding on and trying to control things and make things work and manage it all together, he says, come and let it go, and I'll give you rest. And in the midst of the worst things, Jesus is the one who calls out to us that life can be at peace, that things can be taken care of. And he's almost saying, jump off the saucer, just let it go, um, and I'll take it. I'll take care of things for you. Let it go. Trust God at his word that he can actually care for it. So what is our alternative when we're in that kind of spot? When we're, when we're scrambling, whether in small ways or big ways, I don't know where you guys are at. Is this familiar at all for anybody? Um, I go there all the time, all the time. Um, the alternative is you just say, I can't do it. I, the fact is I can't even manage the smallest parts of my life outside of the work of Christ in my life. It will somewhere along the line show up to be a mess. So even the, even the little things, I think this, is, this little spot's easy. This is an easy one to take care of. Um, they all have to be done in dependence on him. And the alternative is to say, I can't do any of these things. I, can't, I cannot live this life that Christ has called me to outside of the power and work of the Spirit in my life to do it. To take hold of Jesus, to let him take hold of us, and to let him to use his people in our life. So, so what's, what is the one area? I want to make, it, make, make you think of more than one. Um, I like lists of one. If I have a list of two or three, it's too much for me. I, I just drop it all together, so we'll just pick one. What's the one area that, that you find yourself always grabbing onto trying to make it work, trying to control, to, to kind of take up Christ's spot? In, he wants to be the center of it. He wants to hold on to it. He wants the one to bring it together. He wants to manage it for us. What is that one area we've each got that we tend to grab onto ourselves? We grab the reins so quickly. Think of what that is. And, and, and if it's hard to let it go, ask, why is it hard to let go? What is it that makes it hard? Is there fear? Is there um, just not wanting to give it up? Um, we don't trust enough. I mean, there's all different reasons why we sometimes don't want to give up the control over him. So what is the one area that is so hard to let go of? 
and why? So what does Jesus say? Whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake, guess what it says? We find it. We find life and be able to experience it as its fullest. Not out of control, uh, not overwhelming us. Um, When we release it to him, guess what we find? We find a savior that actually picks it up and makes it work and orders it in our life and brings peace. I love this. Uh, This is from Tozer out of um, The Pursuit of God. This this, uh, last quote here says, Everything is safe which we commit to him, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. The things I hang on to so hard myself, thinking that that's what will make them work and safe, guess what? They're They're in the worst place they could possibly be. And the things that we actually release to him, that's the safest place for us to be. Go ahead and stand up with me. So I have said so far in this series that I am like Zacchaeus. Actually, I wanted to be like Zacchaeus, but I was like the grumbling people. Isn't that what I said? Um, I wanted to be like the woman who was anointing his feet, but I'm more like Simon. Um, I'm like Pilate all the time. Um, and the Lord, in his gentle way, sometimes he does it in really tough ways. He just pulls out the rug and makes us, makes us grab onto him. Um, and those are hard. That's hard. Sometimes in very gentle ways, though. He just brings things to mind and says, give it up. Give it to me. Give it to me. So close your eyes for a minute, um, and let's pray. Lord, you have um, paved the way for us. You have spoken peace into our lives. Scriptures tell us that the, the paths of wisdom are full of peace. The paths that we create ourselves or manage or manipulate or hang on to um, are way too often filled with debris and ruin, and um, they just don't measure up to all the things, the good things that you've called us to. So, Lord, for each of us, um, and there are all different things, that you, in, in your own perfect way for each of us, would begin to release our hands from holding on to things so tight and the control of our life. That you might cause us to release these things to you. And in the midst of that, Lord, um, we, uh, we trust in your faithfulness, that you would carry us, that you would give us a, a work in your kingdom, that you would bring peace and rest in our life such that we can work and serve from you in a good place. So bring us there and help us to find the joy of walking in step with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.